giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robot Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Jonathan Kim, CEO of AppCues. Jonathan, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me. So, Jonathan, can you share what AppCues is? Yeah, sure. So, in a nutshell, you know, what we found is that uh, for the most part, creating a great user experience in your product is difficult, it's time-consuming, it's incredibly expensive, and uh, AppCues makes that easy, fast, and inexpensive. We do that by adding a layer on top of your product that lets your non-technical team members create things like new user onboarding experiences, guided walkthroughs, uh, announce new features to drive adoption, uh, all without having to write any code or to be a, a talented designer. Um, we let you publish those things right into your product immediately and uh, target it just to the people that are going to find it most valuable. So how did AppCues come about? Yeah, yeah, I'm a huge believer that people solve problems that are close to them. Mm -hmm. And I used to be a software engineer at a company in Boston called HubSpot. And I was adding more and more parts to this product, right? So uh, I joined in there 2011 via an acquisition. And our whole task was to reinvent this product, sort of redesign it and overhaul it. Uh, and in doing that, I, you know, I worked on a ton of different parts of that product. I worked on the dashboard. I worked on their analytics product. And then it was last when I was working on their social media product uh, called Social Inbox. And I just kept getting this feeling like, wow, I'm adding so much to this product. I wonder how people are using it. And it turned out that most people you know, already found HubSpot to be incredibly overwhelming. Uh, it was really like 20 different products all rolled into one. And as you can imagine, you know, no single person can learn how to use it on their own. And so I started thinking more about, well, if I'm, if I'm an engineer and I'm building software, I want people to use it. Let me learn how people get taught how to use the software today. I started thinking about user experience, things like user onboarding. And I found that within HubSpot and with a ton of other organizations, there are people doing onboarding every single day to a product, right? They're called salespeople or account managers or customer success. And none of that was getting productized, right? It was never getting bubbled up as a Jira ticket or getting on the backlog or, or even being added in as personalization. Uh, and these people were doing exactly the same, same thing every single day, which seemed like a perfect opportunity for software to step in. And that essentially became what AppCues was. We spun out at the end of 2013, just focused on this problem of how can we make new user onboarding experiences, you know, something that is really easy to do and can leverage knowledge within a company and uh, we've taken that from one simple customer based in Boston to almost a thousand uh, across the world now. You, you said spun out. Did you quite literally spin out of HubSpot? <laughs> I mean, not. I guess not literally. Okay. As in <laughs> not literally. I was spinning as I was walking out the door, but that'd be great. Um, <laughs> actually, I'm a pretty passion-driven person, and so yeah. I ended up meeting with uh, my boss at the time. His name is David Cancel. He actually was the one that had run the company. Uh, and started the company that I was at before, which we got acquired by HubSpot. And I was meeting with him and he was like, hey, like, you know, I've been noticing that you're, you know, you're down here, right? And he was like, you're not super excited about the stuff that you're working on right now. Uh, he's like, you're either at 110%, like over the moon, super excited, or you're like not excited at all. And for the past few months, you've been clearly not excited. And uh, he's like, what's going on? And I started talking to him about this problem. I was like, people don't know how to use our software. It's so confusing. Like I'm I'm adding more bloat to something that's already really bloated. I started talking about these problems around user onboarding and, and things like that. And he was like, you get really lit up about that. He's like, you're really excited about it. And he said, you know, if you're if you're staying at HubSpot, you know, just for me or to like work on some things that I'm I'm passionate about. He's like, don't do that for me. 
It's like do things that are, that are you're passionate about. It's like we live long lives and we may work together again in the future, um, but you should follow what your passions are. And I literally that day decided, okay, like in that meeting, I said, I think you're right. I guess this is my two weeks notice. And I quit on the spot. Um, and then uh, two weeks later, I, I left and uh, incorporated a company and probably in the next month or so and got started. Do you think that was the right decision? You know, I think there are some things I look back on and, and I kind of wish I could do over. But honestly, like being such a, a passion driven person, there's probably not a ton of other ways that I could have done it. There are people who are much more strategic about it and put together a business plan and like all of this stuff. I had already saved up, you know, 20,000 bucks of my own money. So I knew this was something I was going to do eventually. I think the one thing I would have done differently is probably tried to get somebody to leave with me and get passionate <laughs> about the problem with me mm-hmm. because, you know, I ended up leaving and starting the company by myself to start out, which is really hard and incredibly lonely. And I was really lucky to find my co-founder Jackson, you know, six to eight months later. But if somebody were to ask me again, like, how should I go about starting a company? I would say first find somebody that works with you that you trust and try to convince them to leave with you because it's so much harder to find somebody later. Yeah, I wanted to dig into. So did you and Jackson know each other beforehand or did you meet after you left HubSpot? Uh, we met after I left HubSpot. So how'd that happen? Believe it or not, it was via a cold email. After leaving HubSpot, I, I had so much personal anxiety or or um I was not very confident in the ability to start and run a company completely on my own. Mm-hmm. You know, you read all these blog posts about how VCs don't invest in single founder companies and like how hard it is and, and that it's basically an impossible task. And so I started doing all of this founder dating, like trying out these websites. Literally one was called founderdating.com, trying to meet other people who could be a business partner. And, you know, I probably spent five or six months doing that until I eventually gave up. And I said, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to do this by myself. All the while you were working on building the product? Oh, yeah. And by the time Jackson and I found each other, we already had about, you know, 15 or 20 paying customers and a product in market. So definitely like moving and trying to get traction, uh, which all really helps attract somebody. But it also means that, you know, this vision, this mission is already further developed. And so you're trying to bring somebody on to a moving train. And that makes it really hard. But after six or so months, I was like, you know what, forget it. There's no way that I'm going to find somebody that's going to get as excited about it as I am. And I just started talking about it publicly. I went to these events and things like that. And um, one of the events that I spoke at, turns out Jackson was on the mailing list, uh, had heard about what I was working on and had just gone through those same challenges at a company that he was at. It took them so long to redesign their onboarding experience. And so he reached out and just wanted to meet and eventually after working like nights and weekends on the side, helping me out, you know, eventually I convinced him to quit that job and join full time. How did you know that he was the right one to become your co-founder? Yeah, that's a tough one. I, I think um, it's so circumstantial. We did a lot of the mm-hmm. basic, you know, sort of like spreadsheet analysis type of thing. Like, what are my strengths? What are his strengths? And I think all of that stuff on paper really worked out. But the thing that really impressed me was that there was no expectation, right? I wasn't saying, hey, let's try working together. And then if this goes well, like you come on as a co-founder and like we do all of this stuff. There was none of that expectation. And he still kept showing up every weekend, you know, to work with a kid who couldn't pay him, who could barely like afford to pay for his own meals, you know, and he was helping and he never complained. He worked really hard. Uh, he was really dependable. And to me, that was like, oh, cool. Like this person could be somebody that I could trust and could be somebody there for the long haul. It's not somebody I need to manage. This is somebody that like sees themselves as an equal partner in this. And that impressed me a lot. Mm-hmm. 
You mentioned the complementary skills. So you're on the product side, the designer developer side of things, and he is COO and more on the business side of things, right? Yeah, exactly. Did you specifically seek that out? Was that what you were looking for? Or was it that if you had found another maker person, designer developer person, but felt like they were contributing, that would have satisfied what you were looking for too? You know, I wish I could say I did it very intentionally, but to be honest, I really got lucky. Mm -hmm. I bet if I did meet another maker, engineering type person, I'm sure we would have got along really great. But long-term, probably would have ended up being the wrong mix because our strengths and interests were too complementary. You know, I, I have a degree in journalism. I didn't really value school very much. I make things for a living, right? I make software, design things. On the other hand, Jackson, a background in finance, uh, went to HBS, had spent uh, time in marketing at uh, an ed tech startup here in Boston. And he just had a totally different background. And I think those skills are really different from what I had And so it ended up being really beneficial to work together. So on a daily basis, what do you focus most on? What are you coming to work every day to do? You know, I I would say that's one of the most challenging things about being a a founder CEO is that your job changes every six months. That's why I asked. Yeah, your job changes every (laughs) six months, right? And so uh, maybe even faster sometimes. So if you asked me that question at the beginning of the year, I would have said, you know, fundraising. We just announced our Series A in August and prepping for that and like getting our metrics in shape, crafting a story. That was my full-time job probably in the first quarter or first half of the year. Now it's really around like team building. So now that we've closed the Series A, it's hiring our first executives, right? People who have done this before. It's bringing on things like people ops and uh, people to manage our culture. It's helping people level up as first-time managers and leaders. So I spend a lot of time on that right now. But if you ask me six months from now, it'll probably be something different. What I don't hear on that list is doing development. <laughs> I did. You know, believe it or not, I did submit a PR yesterday. So, but it was it was a very rare one. There was, oh, okay. there was just like a hot fix. Uh, there was a bug over the weekend mm-hmm. and no one else was available. But uh, I haven't written code in probably a year and a half or so. And are you comfortable with that? Yeah. As I mentioned, I have a degree in journalism and I taught myself how to program because I needed to pay for school. BU is at the time the second most expensive university in the country when I was there in in 2006 to 2010. And I taught myself how to code because I needed a job to pay for school and coding was the highest paying job that I could find. And I've always just been one of those people that whatever my goal is, I will just do whatever it takes to achieve that goal. And so if the company needs me to hire people or to be great at fundraising or to be good at any of these other things, I'll do it. And that's totally fine. And I think everything is kind of a means to an end in the same way that I think great developers don't see technology as it's an end in itself. They see technology as what it enables other people to be able to do. And, uh, you know, they always say like the right tool for the job in the same way that, you know, at the macro scale, what we're trying to accomplish at AppQs, the right skill set to be applying in this case is not coding for me. Uh, It's managing people or hiring people or doing fundraising, stuff like that. Speaking of journalism, did you ever have a job as a journalist? (laughs) Yeah, uh, I did. Actually, several jobs. Never post-college. It was all all through college. Uh, I wrote for a local paper, Mm -hmm. uh, a community newspaper in Boston called the Fenway News. I wrote there for three or so years. I wrote for a paper back home. I'm from Hawaii. And I did graphic work, actually, a lot of graphics work for the Honolulu Advertiser, 
which is no longer in existence. They, I think they got mm-hmm. consolidated, but I was in the, the graphics department there. Was moving more into IT and software development coming from that place of you were doing it as a means to an end so that you could pay your way through journalism school? Was that ever a conscious choice that you were going to focus more on the software development or did it happen organically and you sort of just went with the flow? I would say there was a critical point that I remember very clearly where, you know, we had this assignment when I was in J school where we had to go interview people at a courthouse, right? So it's a pretty standard thing when you're a news reporter that you go to the courthouse and you, you write about what goes on there. And I sat in on an arraignment where a woman's son was getting he was basically like appealing his sentence. And that was really hard, right? And you have to sit through that and then go up and interview the family about the decision. Uh, he didn't get the repeal that he wanted and have to talk to them about it and be like, how are you feeling? Like that takes a lot of, I don't know, a lot of something that I didn't have. You know, you're often put in these really difficult situations as a journalist to have to interview people when they're at their most vulnerable or like their most breaking moments. And that just wasn't for me. So I decided like, okay, you know, I don't want to be a journalist. I really want, went into this to try to be a writer and a storyteller, but I am good at this other thing. You know, I, I take a lot of passion in that. So I was like, well, I don't want to go back to school and pay another, you know, X amount of dollars to, to get reeducated or to change my major. Uh, so I'll just ride this out and get a degree in journalism and then just do whatever I want after that. Are there any ways in which the work in journalism has influenced or benefited what you're doing now? Yeah, absolutely. A couple of things that I think were really beneficial from journalism. uh, The first one is just being able to communicate really effectively. You know, just great grammar. They really hammer that into you. Being able to talk in short and concise sentences makes me really great at being able to send emails and communicate with people. And I think that just comes in handy in life in general. So I definitely recommend that. The second, I think journalists are trained to uh, look for first sources, right, or first-hand sources. And as somebody running a company, like we've put a lot of emphasis on hearing directly from customers for every like secondhand source that we get, you know, maybe a salesperson says, Hey, customers really want this. You need 10 of those to make up for the amount of weight that comes from one customer telling you firsthand, this is my problem. This is what I'm trying to do. Uh, and so it really helped me value first sources, which I think is really related to first principles, right? So you want to think from like first principles constantly to be able to innovate and focus on all the right things. That's cool. So you mentioned David Cancel and folks from HubSpot. They are some of your investors right now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, We're super fortunate to have them. When you decided to fundraise and you mentioned you recently did your Series A. Mm -hmm. So congratulations on that. Was fundraising difficult for you? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, candidly, yes. I think there are a lot of things that have changed in the fundraising market that made it really difficult for us in general. When we did our seed, we had no deck, we had a product and we had some customers using it, but there was no presentation. There was no like, hey, here's the grander vision. The person who led our initial seed, Jeff Fagnan, is a really people-driven investor. He finds people that he can really commit to for essentially forever, right? And these are people that he wants to work with for a really long time. And meeting him early and building a relationship with him and then having recommendations from the HubSpot and Drift founders help, like really helped and push us to go really far. So we got a, a really great seed deal done with some awesome investors that I was super happy with. That said, we I think we took it for granted how unique that situation was, right? Most people spend a lot of time 
put together a really difficult pitch, have to hear no a ton. And that really shapes their ability to become great at this and build experience. We didn't have to go through any of that. And so when we went and did our Series A, I mean, we were essentially fundraising for the first time. The stakes were now so high. Mm-hmm. Uh, the market for a Series A has changed so fast. We're now, you know, the seed is now a Series A size. And so Series A's are now Series B. And so you're taking a first-time founder CEO who's never done a pitch before and you put them into a Series B meeting and tell them, like, try to raise $10 million. Uh, it's a pretty high stakes. And we, we stumbled a lot. Thankfully, we had really great traction at our back and strong product market fit and great customers. But I would say like that storytelling and product market differentiation and like understanding competitive landscape and communicating all of those things really well were things that we struggled with a lot in the Series A. But uh, thankfully, we're fast mm-hmm. learners. <laughs> <laughs> what might companies do in today's market or founders do in starting out? to learn from those challenges that you had? What should people do differently or what should they keep in mind? Yeah, put uh, AI and machine learning all over your slides. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, it's funny. Unfortunately, there's like some truth to that. <laughs> right. A company in Boston called ProfitWell just telling me that uh, companies that put AI or machine learning on their website see like a 15% higher willingness to pay or something like that. And so there is a lot of hype and a lot of buzz around it. I'm sure that ends up being true for fundraising. But, you know, honestly, the thing that helped us a ton was traction. Darmesh and David both told this to me uh, several times early on, which is there are two great times to fundraise. It's before you have anything. Uh, So like, you know, before there's even a single line of code written or any amount of product out there. The second is when you've got a lot of traction. And thankfully, we were raising on the second and not the first. He said, but people make a mistake is when they try to raise in the middle Right, so you put a product out there and it gets middling success, right? Or, or there's some adoption, but it's not, you know, a Snapchat. And I think like any time that we started having conversations around that time, people were not really receptive. They were like, okay, cool. This is neat. Come back to us when there's like a little bit more traction to show. So I have admittedly never raised $10 million before. How much planning did you do to discover that amount? And how much did you know, okay, this is what we're going to spend it on? Yeah, that's uh, that's another really great question and something that we had to learn in pretty short order. You know, early mm-hmm. on for our seed, we were just like, I don't know, what's a good like round number, right? I guess, you know, a million. And so we raised a million or like, you know, you're like, okay, cool, like three million. That's what everyone else is raising nowadays. Let's just do that. With the Series A, the expectation is that you're a lot more mature and you have a better optics into your business. And so we essentially said, okay, cool. We want money to last us 24 or so months. Here are all the things that we want to do in that amount of time, right? 24 months and get to X amount of revenue. Here's how many people we're going to need, right? Here's how much product we're going to ship. Here's how much revenue we think that's going to generate. And then you can kind of do a backwards uh, look and say, okay, cool. At the end of 2019, we're going to be at 20 million in revenue. We're going to need X number of salespeople. We're going to need X number of engineers. We're going to need to do this, this, and this. And be like, okay, cool. Like in order to do that, we're going to need $10 million. Now, I recognize that you announced the fundraising in August. So you're just at the beginning stages of executing on that plan. But how much pressure do you feel to execute on that plan just as it was laid out? Well, I mean, I can give my personal perspective, but I think, you know, having interviewed a bunch of people, you probably hear different answers. Right. No, I love your personal perspective. Yeah. Well, the thing we've learned through the process is that every investor is so different. 
right? Their expectations mm-hmm. are really different. Some people are really product focused and they care about, hey, what are you making? Uh, some people are really metrics focused and they care about like, hey, I just want to look at the numbers. Don't show me anything about the product. And then some people also sort of try to drive the business from the board seat. And that's really, it makes it difficult, right? Because that's when the pressure is really on, even though they're not there day to day trying to help move it. Understand who your partners are before you get in bed with them is really important. And I think we did a really great job there. I'd say there's a healthy amount of pressure, right? Like very few people ever become Brian Halligan, uh, where they're founder CEO, right? It all the way through IPO and now are, are at that level. Like he is an incredibly rare human being uh, to be able to take a company from literally one person to, I think they're now two or 3,000 people. Um, that's really hard to do. And so I think there's a healthy amount of pressure to say, okay, cool. Like you have to, you know, me, Jonathan or, or Jackson both have to try to scale ourselves and in order to do that, you know, hitting our numbers, building in predictability, those types of things are what Brian Halligan does all the time really well. And what like leaders of those companies are able to do really well. So we need to develop those skills. Mm-hmm. I think thankfully, like our investors are pretty good about our strategy and like our opinion of the market and the way things are going to shape out. And so they've given us a lot of trust to be able to say, okay, cool, this is the way that we think this business should be built given this market, given the dynamics. And they also know that there's more variability now than there will be in the future, but the goal is to minimize that over time, right? So it's okay if we're off a little bit on our projections because we don't have a ton of data, but over time, like those predictions should get more and more accurate, kind of like a developer trying to estimate, right? Day one, everything Mm -hmm. takes, you know, a week or a day. And it's a one-line change. And then as you build more experience, as you get more senior in your career, you start to understand how to properly estimate projects. You mentioned different investors have different expectations or strengths or whatever. Do you have things that you do or a cadence to working with investors in terms of providing updates and meeting with them and that kind of thing that you think is working? Admittedly, I was actually really bad at this early on. Mm -hmm. There are other founders that do a really great job of this. But early on, actually, Brian was one of the people that told me this. He was like, all of the stuff around communicating with investors and, and all of that, he's like, that's all well and good, but it's, he's, he called it window dressing. He's like, all they care about at the end of the day is that you're executing and, uh, and building traction. He's like, you can keep them up to date on all the bad news, but what they really want to hear is like, they'd much rather hear good news once a quarter than bad news once a month. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of been focused on that. We've had to level that up a lot post Series A. And so now we've got two people on our board in addition to Jackson and myself. And so now we meet quarterly or actually every six weeks or so. So it's six meetings a year in person. Uh, and then we'll do like, you know, check-ins every once in a while just to catch them up on a, a big customer or on like some big project that's going on or if we need help with like hiring a certain person. Uh, but for the most part, it's six meetings a year. And you mentioned that you've been focused a lot on team building. Is there particular team members that you highlighted at the beginning of this process? Okay, we need to add this person or that person. Who are those people and how have you went about finding them? <laughs> yeah, this is great. I think you're setting me up for a great plug here um, on the show <laughs> where if, if there's a great... It's what, literally, almost literally what I'm here for. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the two big hires that we've got are the the VP of engineering and VP of marketing. And those are our roles that we communicate during the fundraise. Like, hey, we are raising money to hire uh, people with more experience to help us go the distance. How is the team structured now without those positions filled? That's one of the things that I'm I'm both really proud of. And I think is also going to be really unique and shocking to people. So we've got about 15 engineers on the team right now. And until about two months ago, we had no people in product. Uh, so no product managers, nobody with the, the word product in their title. 
And what we did instead is on the product team, we have engineers and designers take a lot of ownership over what they're building. And so that means engineers end up sitting in things like user tests every single month. That means they're doing support for the products that they build. And that means they're also expected to have strong opinions about what we should be building and why and what our customers are asking for and why. And with that, they're able to actually guide the things that they work on and, and improve the decisions that they make every single day, right? There's no secret that engineers and designers make tons of business decisions in the way that they execute, right? How easy something is going to be to use or whether you build it for the short term or you build it for the long term. These are all micro decisions that people making things make all the time. And so by equipping them with good information, taking out you know what could be a crutch, which would be like a product manager sort of telling them what those things should be, we actually created this culture around people caring about that firsthand and then using customers as that firsthand source. And so they're hearing it directly from customers and not filtered through customer success or through me even. And now we're starting to bring in more layers like product management. We just hired our first product manager as well as you know real managers to make the engineering team move faster. Uh, but to date, it's been pretty flat. The way it's worked today is, I think it's exciting. It's very much how ThoughtBot works, uh, admittedly across lots of different clients, but with those small teams of people focused on individual projects. Yeah, well, I've heard uh, rumors of the way that ThoughtBot works. I'd love a little bit more background on it just because I've only heard it secondhand. So we have integrated teams of designers and developers. Our designers at ThoughtBot, it's important to note, aren't just graphic designers or whatever, their user experience, graphic design, they also implement their own work. So they're able to work inside of the app right alongside developers and developers participate in user experience and the functionality when it comes to design of the product and meet the designers in the front end and do heavy lifting in the front end and everything back from there. Our typical team size is three people working directly with each other and directly with users And then one of the things that's obviously different is we also have a client involved. And that client is often the expert or the founder, or at the very least, our main point of contact. Yeah, it sounds like it's very integrated. I think we have a lot of the same principles at play, small autonomous teams with a lot of ownership Mm -hmm. uh, and then direct relationships to our customers. And one of the things that we found it's been a challenge as we scale is It makes it really easy when you've got only a handful of customers and they're all really similar. And then their requests end up being, you know, along the lines of the same thing. Uh, It becomes much harder when you've got a lot more surface area of a product. And then you're also serving a broader set of customers, right? So we've got companies that are five-person startups uh, all the way to a Fortune 5 company. And uh, the needs of those companies are really different. Pretty similar, but like they're definitely on the fringes things that are really different. And uh, you also look at them in terms of, okay, this customer is paying us $45 a month. This person is paying us well over six figures. Whose requests are more important, right? And then you start getting into this prioritization problem that makes it really hard for one team to be able to decide, okay, cool. Like, yeah, this is the direction that our team should go or even the company should go based on good information. And so I think it ends up being either the loudest voice wins uh, or the one with the most money wins or you know the one with the most advocates internally wins and having another layer someone in product who can sort of guide those things and make sure that people are getting the best information not making the decision for you uh, but saying like well here's all the information and let's look at it squarely right here's what will impact the business here's what customers are asking for you know here's how we can look at it and then together using that context for everyone to still make a good decision themselves but you you really i think we are finding it at least that it's really important to have somebody be that facilitator of good information because it's so easy to get bad information at that scale. Mm-hmm. 
So this is a position that is still open and you're actively recruiting for it? We did fill the product management oh, position. Okay. We're hiring for a VP of engineering uh, and a VP of marketing. Oh, VP of marketing. I thought you had said VP of product. Okay. So how did you know that you found this? I can still ask the same question I wanted to ask just in past tense now. Like, how did you know you found the right person? What are the things you look at as a team, as a founder for everyone who joins the company that makes someone a good fit for AppQs as opposed to some other company? Uh, so I still sit in in every interview and I think uh, all founders should, you know, for as long as they can. And we're 60 people and I still think it's important to do. You know, my role in that interview process is to really vet for a culture fit. Everybody else looks pretty hard at uh, skills, like can they be successful here and do the job? Uh, and my job is to make sure that they're a good culture fit. We have five cultural values that I think align a lot to what you're talking about in terms of the way that people work at ThoughtBot. And uh, it's customer first, right? No surprise there. Keep no secrets. We're a hyper-transparent company. We actually share uh, equity and salary information with everybody internally here at AppQs. Uh, and that goes along with like, you know, sharing information about customers, sharing information about the business to better equip people to make good decisions. So that's really important. No permission needed, right? So autonomy in order for these teams, for every team to be able to move quickly, they need a lot of authority to be able to do the things that they think are best. And we arm them with good information so they could do that well. Uh, and then the last one is accountability. Uh, it's a value called get it done. And then the last value is enjoy the journey. And I think that one really speaks to the person that is a great fit here is somebody that says, you know, holy smokes, this is a really transparent place, like hyper transparent, hyper autonomous, like hyper uh, accountable. And I think the wrong person gets scared about that and doesn't feel comfortable in that environment or shies away from that environment. And the right people get really excited about that because uh, they feel like they can have a huge impact and take ownership and pride in the things that they actually do. That's kind of what I look for. So I, I often actually spend most of the interview process selling somebody off of working at AppQs mm -hmm. because uh, it's, it's hard. And I think if somebody can get through that, then they end up being a really good fit. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned was no permission needed. How do you check for that in the interview process? My whole thinking around hiring is that past behavior is a great predictor for future behavior. <laughs> you know, asking somebody, you know, a lot of people come to startups, and, and maybe this is true for ThoughtBot as well, is they come to startups and they say, you know, I ask, okay, why are you here interviewing? They list all these things that they're really unhappy about at their current company. They're like, oh, I'm like a small cog and a bigger cog. Uh, I don't feel like I'm having an impact. You know, my boss doesn't let me do this, or I really want to be able to try this thing, but I you know, haven't been able to do it. And so I'll just ask, okay, cool. Like you want to get better at this, right? Or, hey, here's a time where you mentioned that you got blocked on something. How did you overcome that? And, mm -hmm. you know, I think the right people are people who say things like, oh yeah, I really want to get better at, you know, coding. I'm non-technical and I really want to develop that skill. And the right people will say, and here's what I've been doing on the side, right? Here's a side project. Or I've, I've been listening to classes on these websites online, right? Or here are all these other things that I'm doing. Or they'll say, hey, here's a time where I'm really frustrated by the lack of progress at my current company. You know, maybe they don't believe in continuous deployment, right? And they only deploy every six months. Here's a hack that I did to get around that, right? I've set up my own local server and I can iterate there really quickly. I didn't wait for permission to be able to do that. Yeah. That particular one is, is similar to something that we have at ThoughtBot. And we ask similar questions in, in the interview process and look for the same sort of cues. One of the things that I, I think has been interesting as I've talked through this with hundreds of people is um, you do have to give people the benefit of the doubt that this can also be a reason why people will leave <laughs> their companies. So it's sort of like yeah. the fact that they're talking to us, if they're unhappy with those things. So what I'm looking for is, 
examples of where they tried, they may not have been successful. And that may be the reason why they're they're looking to leave. It's like, despite all of these hacks that I did or things that I took initiative on, I'm tired of having to fight for everything that I believe in. Yeah. And it's like, okay, great. Yeah. You may not always be successful because some environments are really difficult to uh, work this way in. And that can be a reason for people to leave and want to join. It sounds like ThoughtBot or AppGuse. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one of the things that we're trying to figure out, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this is, you know, GitHub is famous for this sort of holocratic version of this no permission needed or autonomy mindset. And uh, we're finding these edge cases where it's like, okay, no permission needed, but like, there's always some implicit rules or like nobody just like runs around and does literally anything that right. they want. Like there's some intentionality behind it. And so how do you sort of have this like value around autonomy while still getting people to row in the same direction, which I think is going to be harder as we get even bigger. Yeah, it, it definitely is. One of the things that I just did recently is publish an org chart mm. and ooh, ooh. never had one b- before. <laughs> But the reason why we did it is we have a structure where people can contribute in anything that they want to and are actively engaged and you don't need permission. But we're big enough now where there are areas of responsibility that people have and each one sort of has a product manager. And I've been phrasing it in those terms. And so giving people a visual tool of saying like, you're more than happy to contribute to something that you see in people operations or HR, for example, but like, here's the person who's responsible for that area. And they might be able to help you achieve what you want to achieve and making that more clear to people. And I think overall that's been positive because I think otherwise people can perceive what is otherwise just being, to be quite honest, ill-equipped to make the most change that you want to make there with they perceive it as, oh, I'm being blocked. Like the people responsible don't want to hear from me because I'm not in that area. And the reality is that's not at all the case. They would love your help and they love being involved. You're just not asking them <laughs> and they're not right. gatekeepers. They're, they're the supporting, right, right. Or doing it the right way. Right. Right. And you can have lots of transparency, but when you have lots of transparency, there tends to be lots of information. And if you're not living it and breathing it every day, you might not have all of the information that someone else might have that helps them to make the decisions or figure out what to do. It's the same thing sort of you were talking about with adding product manager, because it can be hard to have all the needs of all of your customers and have talked to all of them and to have all that information accessible and transfer that knowledge to an individual developer working on some random part of their product. Yeah. I mean, impossible, right? Right. It's And I think that's true even yeah. within our companies on the operations side. Yeah. It's crazy. That's the thing that I'm starting to appreciate a lot is that organizational dynamics are so hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when I was writing code full time, I was like, wow, code is so hard. <laughs> but uh, you machines do whatever you tell it to do. And I think the skill is in telling it what to do like, as accurately as possible. Mm-hmm. Organizations do not do whatever you tell it to do, right? Yeah. And I think it ends up being like a squishier problem. Yeah. It does. And it's been clicking for me to as much as possible to not forget that people are there, but like to think more about the systems that we have in place as a product itself. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's helping to activate the team, designers and developers and non-designers and developers, to not think about it personally, but think about it as a system that we're all working together to create and to design and to improve. And there will be bugs, <laughs> there will be issues, but we can sort of log them just like any bug or issue in any product that we build and then work on it together. And for me, it's been really rewarding to see that that happening. Yeah, systems thinking is really big now. I love the analogy extending all the way to bugs and maybe even a backlog. Mm -hmm. I think that's really cool. So you mentioned the important roles that you're hiring for. Are there other things that are on your radar as, okay, this is what I'm trying to do now or what we're trying to do as a company? At a macro scale, I was just looking at this the other day, 8 million people every single month now are seeing an app use experience in a product that they use, Mm -hmm. right? So Statistically, it's pretty likely that you and many other people at ThoughtBot have seen AppCues, right? You signed up for a product and the way that you got onboarded to that or a feature that you found out about was actually powered by our product, mm-hmm. uh, by our platform. Mm-hmm. Now, our goal is to get that to billions of people, right? Uh, there's now 4 billion people on the internet. We're serving 8 million of them in a month. And so I think we just need to continue to get customers that are uh, getting in front of other people so that we can make their lives with software even better. And that's kind of the mission. I think one of the things that I've been thinking a lot more about lately is, you know, along that path, one of the things that we need to solve is more on a a Boston scale, right? Is we are not a city known for amazing user experience. We're not a city known for like consumer-y type product experiences or consumer products. We're not a city known for great design. And in order for us to be successful, we need people who have that background and have that experience and have those desires. And so I've been thinking a lot more about like, what are ways that we can kind of get ahead of that and be building a culture and a brand here in Boston so that, you know, two years from now, when I need to hire a team of 10 designers, I can look to Boston, right? And not have to think about, should we hire people from outside of it or or anything like that? And uh, I don't know the answer. It's just something I'm, I'm thinking about. Well, I don't necessarily disagree, but I think a lot of listeners would say, why does Boston matter? Why does location matter? Why does being able to hire that team here matter? Yeah, that's a good point. ThoughtBot is a a remote team, right? And I I believe you guys have a pretty flexible work policy. We actually really believe in local teams working face-to-face with people. And so we've tried to find a hybrid model. And the reason why we believe in that is because we went through a period of time where we were remote. And it was fine, but fine isn't good enough for us. Being sustainable Mm. over the long term, I've been doing this for 15 years now, and being fulfilled in my work as a designer, as a developer, working with people that I enjoy working with over the long term is really important to me. And working remotely was fine for two, three years, but didn't feel like the way that we were going to be fulfilled in our work over the next decade. And so we've tried to create a hybrid model. So we have local teams in the cities, but primarily working with each other. But then we're across many different cities so that people can live where they want to live, but work with that team of people together. So it's it's sort of a hybrid model, which is more specific to maybe to consulting and to the work we do. We have the ability to work directly with local clients in the cities that we're in. Yeah, that is really cool. My thinking on this stuff has been guided by a couple of things. One of which I've started to realize that unless I truly like believe in something and it comes naturally to me, mm-hmm. it's really hard for me to get excited about it. And if it's right. not something that's natural to me and I can't get excited about it, it's going to be hard for other people to get excited about it or really mm-hmm. rally behind it. And other people have given me this advice, right? If you're going to build a remote culture or even a hybrid remote culture, 
um, you have to invest a hundred percent into it. You right. can't have, yep. can't go half in on a remote team. Right. And me being the type of person, they're like, no, I, I really want an office culture. Like I like being in the office that just sets the tone for everybody else. Mm-hmm. And, and that just wouldn't be fair. Like it just, it means that I'm not gonna be able to go a hundred percent into it. And, um, I think the, the second thing is that we are already as a company, like trying to innovate in a lot of new ways. Five years ago, nobody would have thought about outsourcing something as important as their new user experience Mm -hmm. to a company that wasn't internal, right. Or like to a team that wasn't internal. And now we're doing that for some of the brands out there that are known for amazing user experience. And so I think we've innovated in that category. I think we're innovating on the product. Uh, we're innovating on a lot of the things that we're doing in go-to-market strategy. Uh, the place that I don't think we need to innovate on are, are some of the things that maybe aren't aren't critical to our business right now. Mm-hmm. Like we're not going to be innovating in our accounting practices, right? And right. I would put like a in-office versus remote culture probably in there as well. Like we do have people who are remote, but it's exclusively support because that's something that is needs to be global for us. But I, I don't know. I'm I'm still not sold on the idea that the company should be like a hybrid or remote yet. Mm-hmm. Well, it's been an exciting story so far. Thank you for sharing it. And you have a lot ahead of you (laughs) as a company, having just raised that Series A. I wish you the best of luck. Thank you. Yeah, this has been really fun. Uh, Some good questions. A lot I haven't been asked before, so I appreciate that. This is fun. (laughs) Okay, good. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Obarski. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.